Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Live. Okay, hi everyone. We are um, back with another call for the our COP. We took a couple months off because um, it was crazy around um, AOTA conference, but um, we're thrilled today to have one of our community members, Claudia Cirincioni, um, who agreed to lead a call and chat about a topic that's really um, important to her and her practice. So she's going to be talking about um, youth transition and how that transition affects OT services and where OT should be involved at different, um, in different aspects of the child as they transition throughout their, um, their education. So I'm going to go ahead um, and pass it off to Claudia. Um, this call, um, we have um, Teresa and Ashley and Claudia on this call. We suspect because of the summer that a lot of you are busy, um, but we're thankful we're going to have this recording available. And then um, we, um, this is a great topic and we've had some interest in this topic, so um, if we don't have more people join, what we'll end up doing is having a follow-up maybe discussion on this topic where we can discuss the things Claudia has presented in, in, um, in more of a, a group discussion format for a call later this fall, maybe when people are back in the mindset of, um, of OT. So I'm going to pass it off to um, Claudia to go ahead and introduce herself further and to get started with our call. Hey. Hi, I'm Claudia Strincioni. Teresa, you said my last name beautifully before. And Great. Um, I, I've, I've worked in schools for the past uh, eight years, and primarily through um, pre-K through eighth grade. And my observation through those different levels was that um, the expectations for therapy really changed. So this topic of transition is a very important one. So when you have a child, say, in pre-K, um, and there's a referral for occupational therapy, um, you have to define carefully what outcome is expected for therapy. And um, I always say I'm, I'm working at myself out of a job because ultimately that child will, in special ed, in many cases, is not meant to be in the picture forever. You want to transition that child into regular ed if possible, depending on what the child's needs are. So, but therapy service in and of itself is not the desired outcome. So it's important to help the team and the parent define the key participation restrictions related to the child's school performance uh, in, in all the categories and um, in learning and the ability to share what has been learned, what, is the, what are the students' expected roles at school, and, um, and how well does the, the student access the environment and the opportunities in that environment. And like I said, those areas really, really change and shift um, throughout the whole educational uh, um, life of the child, as, as Teresa said. So um, when I got up to the middle school level a few years ago, that's when I really began looking critically is, okay, what's the purpose of therapy now? What is it that OT is going to do that is unique, uh, the uniqueness of our service that's going to help further that child's participation? Now, in my district, what was happening was um, there, there's many programs at the middle schools in the district I work in. 
And um, a lot of times once these children got into these smaller self-contained classrooms, such as the ID classrooms or the autism classrooms, um, a lot of their needs were being met. And it was really about just supports and modifications. So when the children were more in early elementary school, there might be goals they were coming in with for handwriting. And, um, but at this point, because of programming changes, and now I have to say our district is, even for special ed students, they're um, getting the iPads and the Chromebooks for the students. So that'll be interesting to see how that's going to affect uh, student participation in our district, so especially for those kids in special ed. Um, so I began looking carefully as a lot of my students were coming up with three-year reevaluations, um, and many of them at the middle school level were going on to high school. I was kind of at a loss for the right kind of assessment to really create an accurate profile of the student. What, what are their current needs now? It's different from when they're elementary school. And even as I look back at the assessments that were used during at that time, it may not necessarily be appropriate. I like the school function assessment, and I have used that. And I will use that, say, for a 13 or 14-year-old. I qualify with this assessment is for um, children up to the age of 12. However, many of the items on this report measure are appropriate to um, this particular student's educational programming. So I have used that. Um, I'm not crazy about it, though, only because there are some things on there about recess and some other areas that really don't apply to middle school level. So um, with the two assessments that I started using this past year that I really liked uh, were the short occupational profile and um, the OT-PAL. So now again, the OT-PAL only goes up to age 12. But I thought both of them really, really captured a good profile of the student to identify the student's strengths and present needs. It, it involves a teacher interview, a parent interview. And it goes back to what I said in the beginning. When you, when you look at beginning therapy, it's important to help the team and the parent define the key participation restrictions related to school performance. So as I said, I found the scope and the OT-PAL to be useful to create that picture, to create that profile and get everyone to weigh in on what students' current needs are. Um, is there anything anybody wants to add at that point before I continue on, or should I just keep going? Okay, so I'll keep going. Um, I won't go through this assessment specifically unless somebody wants me to describe them further. Um, but I found that those are very useful. Now, as far as specific programming at the middle school level, one thing that I um, do a lot of are groups for my kids that are on caseload. Um, they'll come into middle school with a lot of academically related goals, like I said, for handwriting, things like that. But once they get to middle school, depending on what uh, their presenting problem is, what their medical condition is, um, the disability that warranted OT services is not likely to change a whole lot by the time they get to the middle school level, especially for those students that are a little bit more involved, have more significant needs. So. Um, what I found useful is just doing some real functional things with them. I did a letter writing group with um, my middle schoolers for a while. I was, they always love to do little cooking activities. That's always fun. And one of the classrooms we had, um, there actually was a little microwave and a sink. And, and um, so it was really, really, really fun to get those kids involved. And, and it's very functional. It's meaningful to them. So that's what I found at the middle school level as far as the type of service I was delivering. That seemed to be... Um, getting them involved in meaningful occupations, helping them to explore some things that they might not get a chance to explore outside of school. It also kind of helps to inform 
what is what are their interests are. So another thing that I started doing this year with my eighth eighth graders um, who are transitioning up to high school, um, I tried another assessment, the children's assessment of participation and enjoyment and the preferences for activities of children. And those are very nice assessments to explore with a student, assuming that they're, even if they're nonverbal, there's uh, um, uh, cards that go with it, so, uh, activity sort cards that you use with it. And it helps to kind of create, again, a profile or a picture of what the child's interests are. Because when that child transitions up to high school, those activities, those extracurricular activities outside of mandated um, academic activities, it's important that that child develops those leisure participation skills. So I did find that to be a very useful, helpful assessment to bring that to the table at the transition planning meetings for high school. And um, it's kind of like something that they, they think about, but they don't do it very methodically. The team doesn't. And um, to have that extra bit of data to contribute to the discussion was really, really, really uh, beneficial. So um, I have not worked at the high school. So this is where I'm hoping to open up a little bit of discussion. Um, at our, again, in my district, we have two high schools. And the programming, they don't have OT directly involved in many of the programs. Again, OT is there more for supports and resources. And my, my theory is that because our district contracts with the agency I work for. And I, if anybody has any experience in this, I would love to know if you work directly for a district, I feel like there's more opportunities to maybe get involved or have a voice in the district's programming. Would that be correct? Can anybody comment on that? Um, yeah, this is Teresa. I think, I mean, I've worked primarily for a non-public um, school with high school students, but I do find, um, well, even at that school, being in the same building all day long has been was the most helpful thing for being able to, to affect things that happened um, on a programmatic level. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if I had been traveling from school to school and wasn't there, it is a lot harder to communicate with administration. And from what I, I would, so I would imagine, yes, it would be more, um, when you work directly for the district and you are maybe um, in one school or you have good connections with administration, and they know yeah. who you are and they know what you're doing, then it makes it easier to work above that one-on-one -on -one level with students at the, you know, the system um, level support. Yeah. That's a good point. And, and again, in our district therapists are itinerant. And I know the OTs who serve our two high schools, they're not there every day all day. They are moving from building to building. So I think you're right. It's more a matter of what's the OT's presence in the building that would facilitate or impede the ability for that therapist to get more involved in, in the high school's programming. So, um, and you said it was a private high school. Do you work directly for them then, correct? Yeah, so we, we were considered non-public and I worked directly for them, right, um, employed by the school. Yeah, yeah, it, it, I, yeah that, was, that, seems, it, that makes sense. Um, so anyway, so yeah, in my district, like I said, our therapists are itinerant and they're only there maybe a day or two a week. So. That's to say they're more of a resource for um, accommodations and supports, things like that. So um, I think, again, talking about youth transition, when they're younger, we're focused more on the remediation of the skills. But then as, as they get older, then it's much more about just the overall functional participation. And um, like I said, I, I, once they're kind of slotted into certain programs, um, for example, the ID program, 
uh, you know, and I see a lot of kids where it seems like there's the academics aren't as motivating or meaningful to them, which I think um, I wish there was a way to change that piece because I think they, there is a lot they can do and we need to be thinking about more pre-vocational training, even at the middle school level, uh, developing those skills at that level. But again, I'm only a itinerant in my middle school, so it's hard to um, really make a, a change in that area. One thing I heard of a, a, another therapist doing in another state, actually, she found out about these little uh, tabletop vending machines. And she took that mm-hmm. on for her autism students. So that was a great idea. And so she was able to turn that into a program, like a little pre-vocational training program. They were completely responsible for stocking the machines and um, collecting the money and maintaining them. And she had a whole program in place, which I think is a very cool idea. Um, again, Teresa, have you had any experience or any like programming, like little pre-vocational things like that at the high school you worked at? Or did you um, do any well, things like that? I, lo- I love what you said about, um, I think with everything with transition, I have worked with a lot of 18 to 22-year-olds um, mm-hmm. that are able to stay in districts because they have a disability until the age of 22. Um, but really that time, that 18 to 22, or even starting at 14 when, when we are mandated by IDEA to, to talk, start talking about the transition is really almost too late. Like it needs to happen a lot earlier for a lot of the students we work with. Yeah. Um, and one of the projects I'm working on now is helping um, uh, students develop um, self-determination skills, which are really important for success in college and career, but doing mm-hmm. that um, um, through um, taking an active role in participation in their um, their IEP meeting. Mm-hmm. So, because um, that's a just na- natural opportunity that happens every year for every student that receives um, uh, special education services, including OT, where they can advocate for themselves, communicate about themselves, take part in the goal writing and the goal planning process, and maybe speak up about what they, their interests are. Um, and so we started doing that um, with students um, across the board as young as you know, first and second grade, knowing that they have an IEP meeting coming in and giving a presentation about themselves to start practicing that ability to communicate to others and to um, understand what goals are and um, set the stage for them later when they're um, an adult to be able to make decisions about their life as far as where they want to work or w- whether they want to go to school or not. Um, and we found it's not only beneficial for the students, but it's beneficial for the parents immensely to start seeing their child in a different light and to see what their child's positive qualities are in school. Um, Because sometimes I work with students with pretty significant disabilities, um, Mm -hmm. and very often everything the parents hear, they hear so many negative things about their students. So to have um, the meeting, an IEP meeting open with positive things presented by the students themselves has been a really nice thing to set the tone for the meeting and then to help the parent and the child start thinking of themselves as capable of achieving something like a job or college um, at the age of 18 or 22. Mm-hmm. And that is very important. I've heard that too, where parents say, I, I'm so tired of hearing what my child can't do. And that's where I've also shifted to really trying to create that strength-based evaluation, that strength-based mm-hmm. And that's what I say, I try and, I've really been trying to find profiles that really reflect that because we know these, these children can, these adolescents can do things. So how do we best serve them? And by the way, um, that self, self-determination, 
is one of the eight best practices um, for occupational therapy in schools. And I'll just go on, touch on the other seven for the sake of our other callers, our listeners. Um, paid and unpaid work experiences, employment mm-hmm. participation, emphasizing job searching skills and vocational training, family involvement, social skills, independent living skills, community and interagency collaboration. So along with, again, the self-determination. So, and um, yeah, and I, I agree, this really should start sooner. As I said, the, the day therapy is initiated, which starts much, much younger uh, at the early elementary, even pre-K level, let's start thinking ahead. And um, so, yeah, transitioning is, is a long process, not just, you know, at, at any particular grade level, okay, I want to move them off therapy services. No, it is right. what's best for the child and moving them in that direction. So um, for more to develop those independent living skills and, and, uh, and the self-determination. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was, um, so in transition to, um, and you said you worked with 18 to 22-year-olds. Um, so, yes, yeah, so those other areas, the transition to post-educational, uh, post-sec- sorry, post-school activities, uh, the post-secondary education, vocational training and education, integrated employment, independent living, and community participation. Um, again, what are we doing to set up? Um, our students to meet those areas once they are out of school, once they're 22, um, what's the next step? And I've also uh, talked with parents who have expressed some anxiety at that. It's like, oh, my gosh, their child's 22, what's next? What have we been doing all these years, not just through high school, but earlier on, to get ready for this day? So that is really a critical time in looking at at the transitions um, throughout the different grade levels Uh, is really a critical piece. Um, and it really comes down to getting to know the student and the different contexts and environments, knowing the child's uh, medical condition and uh, from a therapy perspective and what their needs are, what change can be expected versus uh, what about certain conditions needs to be accepted, and then what modifications and adaptations can be made around those limitations. How is participation impacted by the body structure and functional activity limitations of a specific diagnosis, so all things to consider. Um, let's see, so student characteristics, evidence on characteristics of students of different populations. Um, as you say, it's, um, was it an uh, autism program you were working with, or what was the program you mentioned, or the um, population? Mostly students with autism, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I have. I have a lot of ID and um, students with autism, so, um, and knowing what the features are of, of the, the population you're working with, the students you're working with, knowledge of skill progression and characteristics of um, these major disorders helps with planning. Um, there is, to help inform that, there are a variety of uh, rating scales um, that can be useful for children with physical dis- disabilities between 2 and 18 years of age. Um, and it just helps to share expectations for future development based on the present level of function. In other words, what can we expect? and how do we want to share this information with the team and with our families? Um, like I said, it's, you want to paint a positive picture and um, you show what the child can do, but also what is reasonable to expect given a, a, a particular diagnosis. So uh, just a couple of these things, I'm going to name, the, uh, name them off, are the motor impairment rating scale for children with Down syndrome is one. Children with autism spectrum disorder, uh, the classroom interventions for uh, children with ASD, 
which is a 12-week fund motor skills program for three to seven-year-olds. And um, let's see what else. So there's just a couple of that can help inform what's expected. Because I have seen it also where parents might um, say you have a child with fluctuating tone, say they have CP, um, and to help the parent to see, well, this is what we can expect, and these are the kinds of supports and accommodations we might want to put in place to help um, capitalize on that child, the mobility that the child does have. So um, let's see. And also, as I said, when I look back at students at the middle school level, and they've been receiving therapy since preschool, um, to look back on what, what therapy has the child received, what was the intensity, how many years, how frequent, uh, what are the goals that were identified back at, at preschool or kindergarten, how are they measured, what has the progress been towards the attainment of those goals, um, and has the child received outside services, and what were the goals addressed through um, the provision of outside services. So all considerations when we talk about transitioning students onto the next level and really uh, closely looking at uh, uh, the, knowing the student, getting to know the student. So um, what was the initial reason that the child was evaluated for OT or PT services? So, um, yeah. Um, at this point, I'll shift into, um, is so we talked a bit about programming at the high school level and um, the transitioning from middle school to high school. Um, some of the assessments that I've used to create that profile uh, about the child to best address their needs and to facilitate participation. Um, let's see, also AT, assistive technology, what would the child need for that? Um, and what is the kind of environment? What does it look like at the high school level that they're going on to? Or at the middle school level, as I mentioned before, when um, I started working at the middle school, um, the smaller classroom sizes that were available with the very specific programs really did facilitate um, the participation and performance of the, the students. So changing for gym was always a big one, though. I do a lot of work with students on that, that and the locks, managing the locks and the lockers at the middle school level when they first get up, uh, up into middle school. Um, yeah, but again, looking at those uh, contextual factors, like, you know, like I said, the locker locks and all of that. Um, that's about it. That's what all I had for the, the call. I feel like that's short, but without too much discussion. Um, I guess I want to throw it out. What other uh, assessments has anybody else used uh, Teresa, what have you used with your high school students that you've found to be to create that profile to, for program planning or for discharge if they're ready to be stepped down from service? Right. It really depends on the ability level of the students. So I've worked with students, um, many students that are um, nonverbal, and so that makes it things really difficult. Um, there's a new um, adolescent activity, adolescent and youth activity card sort that um, yeah. I have. Um, we started using um, at the school I used to work at. Um, we, we have to adapt it. We're trying to figure out what are the adaptations that are, work best for these students, but we've had some success with it. Um, and actually, we mentioned this on a previous call, I think, but the, the, new, the newest version of the, um, the COSA, the Child Occupational Self-Assessment, um, mm -hmm. um, we've always I've always used it with students that were older than the, the recommended age range, but now their manual actually states that um, it can be used with children of or youth of any age so long as that their cognitive level is, is appropriate for what the assessment requires. Um, but I like those two things because they um, help get capture um, the student's perspective 
which I think mm-hmm. is a really important part of um, assessment at the middle and high school level. Um, I think very often we as OTs just kind of go through our routine of doing, you know, those skill-based assessments and um, and sometimes we don't take the time to really sit and, and um, talk with a student about what they want. And then I think the other thing is that we, students, I think, have to be taught or help, we have to help guide them to to make decisions about themselves and to think about what they want or what their preferences are sometimes because a lot of these students don't get asked those questions very often. Um, so sometimes I think, you know, when I first started, if a student said, well, I don't know, I might have just let it go and said the student's not sure. But now I spend some more time really trying to help the student um, to process what they might want, and even if that's an informal interview, um, to kind of work with them to, to start thinking about what, what they like and don't like and what they might like to do with their future and what's hard for them and what's easy for them and what they might like to work on. Um, so that's usually more of an informal type of interview um, process. Um, well, I think but, you're absolutely right. Yeah, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Right. Go ahead. Well, yeah, okay, you know, you're absolutely right. That's another factor, too, is that too often we don't let the student weigh in, give, let him have a voice in, in what's meaningful or important to him. And um, it's uh, and that's all part of that cultivating self-determination, as you talked about before, and making them self-aware. And, and maybe they've never thought about it before. So, um, yeah, that is a very important piece. I think that you're right. Sometimes we get mm-hmm. caught up in administering our um, assessments and, you know, gathering the data that we overlook kind of the obvious. So... Um, which is another thing, you know, we have a chance to sit and, you know, to informally ask those questions. And, and it goes back to what I've been saying earlier, know the student, know what's also meaningful to them, what, what parents want, what the student wants, what, um, what the teacher wants. It's all part of that team process. So mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting, the OT PAL, that does have mm-hmm. a student interview portion, but the short, uh, short child occupational profile does not. And yet the scope, the short child occupational profile, is for older students. I always thought that was reversed. I always thought they should, or at least the scope should also have um, a child interview. That's where I almost like the OT pal more. That's for children up to age 12. But mm-hmm. I think that, that uh, student interview is really, really important. And when I've sat with my students and used that part of it, it's just like you said, it is a, so at first they don't really have an idea, but you kind of kind of coax them and give them some time to just think about it, and then, and then you start getting some answers. You, you, they, you can see that they're thinking about it, and, and they eventually come up with something. So um, that's critical. Mm-hmm. I don't know why the, the scope doesn't. So, um, and what was the assessment you just mentioned? Was it um, the COSA? Uh, you said <laughs> that that's now for younger students, and they also have that student uh, interview, correct? Right, it's a completely a, 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 um, done with the student or the child. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was originally designed for eight to fourteen, I think. Um, yeah. But now, um, and I've used it for years with students older than that. But um, but now it officially states in the manual that it can be um, used for students up to or children up to the age of twenty-one. It's not a school-specific assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, and Claudia, I was wondering about the scope. I don't work with um, high school students, but uh, I work with younger kids. But I have done yeah. this scope before. And I know it goes up to 21 and can be observation mm-hmm. or interview, which, you know, as I've used it more, of course, it's an interview with the parent or caregiver. Uh, mm-hmm. So do you think, like, it could that interview portion could be 
turn into an interview with an older student? Or yes. Yeah, the questions off of the OT PAL um, could definitely be used with those older students. So it's almost like you combine the assessments in that way uh, just to introduce that, that portion over. So I thought it had nice questions just to get the child thinking about, you know, what do they want to do in the future and what's important to them. So, sure. yes, that's a good point, Ashley. Yeah. Well, I wonder, too, about, like, the COPM. I know, you know, it's traditionally used more with adults, but they're, you know, different people are trying to use it more with uh, children, even younger children, and doing that more as mm -hmm. a, with the parent and the child. Um, so I, I don't know how that would fit in a school setting necessarily, but that might be another option, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's one that has been, that comes up in a lot of discussions, and there are ways to make it work with children, and so I think it, it, it could be definitely work with a lot of middle schoolers and um, high schoolers mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. My one uh, hesitation with the COPM, um, and I really haven't used it that much, um, actually only once, but um, is that it's got that 10-point rating skill. I mean, that's a pretty broad, I wish it were a little bit shorter. Like at least the other ones that I mentioned had four or five-point uh, rating scales and um, or four-point scales, you know, facilitates, allows, inhibits, restricts, or uh, the other one, let's see what the other categories were. It's like 10 points. A 10-point scale is pretty broad and you don't get as much information versus if you limit it to say you know four or a four or five point scale if you have five point then the person is for, it forces more of a, a specific choice so um but yeah i think you get more information when you can limit limit it down to the um limit the scaling down a bit so that's what i have to say about that with the copm but yeah i just need to explore that with the students and, and what's uh what's important to them um yeah, I think I'm just going through my information here, what I wanted to share. Um, yeah, looking at school environments and um, behavioral observations. Um, all areas to consider. Hmm. I think that's it. That's all. Well, I think, Claudia, I think you made some really good points, and I think this is important to talk about because that transition from elementary to middle school and then also middle to high school, I think is a point where um, you know, there there is some confusion about, um, you know, especially from middle from elementary to middle. I think maybe like what is that? When do we stop working on things like fine motor skills and handwriting? Um, mm -hmm. When do we decide they're not going to get better? And then if we decide that the student has reached their their level of development with those things, mm -hmm. um, you know, what do we do next? Is that when, so? Some people would say discharge. Right. Um, but but there may be other skills in middle and high school that the student could um, require OT skills for in order to um, to fully benefit from their education. So there, I think, needs to be some type of a shift from maybe what we've tradition traditionally think of as school-based therapy in, in early childhood and elementary school um, to think about what what new skills are are required of the student in middle and high school. Um, and where can OT fit in? Because um, if we discharge too soon, I think we, we maybe, you know, um, uh, we're not changing our students. Like, yeah. The children to access our, our skills that could be so beneficial for them. We don't want to deprive them of, of OT when they could really need it. Um, mm -hmm. But it does take some thinking about what, what is our role in each of these different areas. So I appreciate mm -hmm. you bringing this topic up to um, our COP, and I hope 
we have um, people who listen to the call, and then um, maybe we can start a discussion thread um, through our, our listserv, but then also um, I think it would be interesting to have a follow-up call maybe in the fall and maybe frame that more of a discussion and start with, you know, what do you all think about this? What is the role of OT in, in middle mm -hmm. and high school? And, and is what's happening in your districts? I know that's something you wanted to hear from members about, Claudia. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what's going on. And I appreciate what you shared about the high school you work at. And um, yeah, and what tools are therapists using to make their decisions on the level of therapy interventions for their students and based on looking at the needs and the change in these needs and um, uh, therefore the potential change to the interventions uh, based on the environment. So um, yeah, I think this is definitely going to be an ongoing discussion and uh, hopefully uh, we'll hear more from other therapists. Yeah. Do we have any sense, I, I mean, and you may not know, or I don't know if, if there's a way to find out, um, how many OTs work in high schools or middle schools versus mm -hmm. just in school-based practice in Illinois or across the country? Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a way That's to even that out. I don't know. I don't, I don't statistic on that. There's got to be. I would think, but, yeah, now I'm going to look that up. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it would be interesting just to know in our own COP too how many are if yeah. how many of the school based therapists are working um, with middle and high schoolers. Right. Yeah, and does that number drop off when you look at the number of therapists say in EI or early childhood? Yeah. What, you know, compared to the, those older ages, is there a discrepancy because people perceive that our service has less value with the older students? Right. Like I said, I really feel like we could be more involved. Um, at the high school level and part of that vocational planning and pre-vocational planning, all of that, but we're not, so, because we're itinerant and, um, yeah. So, what's yeah. happening? Well, and it varies. Yeah. I know, like, at the school I used to work with, one of the OTs there um, has, it took a long time, it was a long process, but has made a lot of headway um, with collaborating with the vocational staff. Um, and helping them understand the value of OT. And they've created some programs um, um, to help students get some job skills within the school and then out of the school. And, and one thing that I think is happening there um, or that has been talked about a lot there is, um, you know, OTs looking at, let's say you had in the community a, a business that said, we'd love to have children with autism or adolescents with autism come and do job training here at our business. Well, one thing an OT could do is go to that business and help identify appropriate tasks at that site, at that work site, and what would be mm -hmm. appropriate for the students with autism and what modifications they might need to be at that, that job site. So we can do it for a specific student, but we can also work with that business to help identify what they do and, and what would be appropriate to have students do to help them. Um, and so... So there's, there's things like that happening. There's OTs who are doing great things um, in those areas. And certainly through AOTA, there's, um, we have a national transition work group um, through AOTA. And we also, there are resources on the AOTA website about young adult transition. And every mm -hmm. year at conference, there's always presentations about transition. And you can hear what other OTs are doing nationally. But I don't have a good sense of what's happening in our own state. So this might be an interesting um, an interesting idea to kind of explore what other people are doing in the state and because it will probably vary district to district and um, and what percentage of our COP is, is working with middle school and high school students. Yeah. I think that would be a great, uh, I'd like to find out, it'd be really interesting to find out what the numbers are. So, um, and really who the trailblazers are that are 
getting out there and establishing the relationships, like you said, with um, the uh, coordinators for the vocational programs. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, well, hopefully we'll hear in, hear from more therapists and find out more of what's going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, well, Ashley, did you have anything else? I wanted to thank Claudia so much for um, for hosting, but Ashley, did you have anything else you wanted to add or talk about on the call? I don't think so. Yeah, I think that if that's a good plan, we'll have a follow-up discussion. And uh, anybody listening, we hope you all have a, a great summer, and we look forward to continuing our POP work. And, uh, yeah. Great. Well, Claudia, we so appreciate it. And if we have any other community members who are interested in leading a call similar to the way Claudia did, or even if you have an idea for doing something different, please let us know. Ashley and I um, love being on all the calls, but we also love it when we have someone else to lead the call because we like having you guys um, participate um, and lead topics that are important to you. Um, So please send us an email um, and let us know if you're interested in leading a call. We'd love to have you. Yeah, on any topic, yeah, anything that you want to. Well, thank you for letting me lead, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your summer. Okay, you too, Claudia, and I hope that you um, join us for sure, Claudia. We'll schedule a follow-up discussion call. We'll make sure you're there, okay? Okay, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Okay, great. All right, thank you. Thanks. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.